Welcome to the Plan C Podcast. And welcome to the Plan C Podcast with your host, me, Dave Luster. Uh, me, Neil Gibb. And today we're going to be talking to uh, Emma Harvey. Emma is the head of the NHS Innovation Lab uh, in Leeds in the UK. And um, I think rather than me try and explain it, um, I'll jump straight in and say, hello, Emma. Welcome. And um, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what NHS X, well, perhaps first of all, what NHS X is and then what the Innovation Lab is? Okay, hi. So I head up the NHSX Innovation Lab. NHSX is a partnership between the Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England Improvements, um, who were brought together middle of last year to bring together the policy and then sort of technical delivery um, and strategy parts of um, the you know arms length bodies and, and department working in health. Um, so being formed really to set the technology strategy and policy for the NHS. Oh, I'll tell you why we were interested in talking to you. I mean, I saw you, met you first of all when you were doing a, a TEDx talk, and I think you might have referenced it a few times, but you don't kind of look or sound like what I would see as a typical NHS IT manager, which is part of what you're about. And, you know, what's, what's interesting, the NHS you know, is one of the largest buyers of IT in the world, it's, uh, but it's also a public sector organization, probably got a bit of a reputation rightly for being conservative. And you're trying to do something very different by applying new thinking uh, and, and sort of new innovation into that. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's funny you say that I, I don't look like um, what you'd expect. I seem to spend my life being told I don't look like things. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm and apparently I don't look like a dairy farmer's daughter. Um, I don't look like somebody who's worked in IT since 1998. I don't look like someone in the leadership position. But I think for me, that's been really good. And I, I dropped out of university at 18, which is probably the best thing I could have done and got a job working as a receptionist slash administrator in a company who were making websites. And I didn't really know what the internet was at the time or what a website was. I was attracted to the role because it said I could arrange flowers, which sounded lots of fun. Um, and then quickly got in there, um, took to these computer thingies, automated most of my job, and then I've spent kind of the rest of my career working my way up from the bottom. Um, and I've always been interested in, I guess, challenging the status quo and doing things a bit differently. Um, very passionate about people and user-centered design and making sure that we um, make things that work with the way people behave rather than trying to make software that you then have to train people to use, which I think a lot of technologists do. Um, I've also been really keen on finding different ways to get people to approach things. So I've done a lot of things like service jam and gov jam and sort of design sprints where you will take a room of people and the first thing you do is send them outside to talk to people and understand people's actual concerns before they start getting excited about building a thing um, and trying to answer real needs and also interrogating people so that you find what is the real problem, not the problem the person think they have. Um, I think an example of that, years ago I did a, an innovation challenge um, in partnership with the Barnsley 
um, a healthcare foundation trust and working with midwives who they came and said, we've got a really, really large refugee population and the sort of social makeup of who we're treating has totally changed. Um, loads of people have either English as a second language or no English at all. Therefore, we need a translation tool. And actually, when we dug into it a bit further and talked to the midwives, one of the quotes that really stuck out for me was a midwife said, well, we, we go in and we ask the patient how she's feeling and she'll speak for ages and ages and ages. And then a husband will turn to us and say, she's fine. And so what we realized, the problem wasn't necessarily the language barrier. It was that that language barrier was allowing the opportunity for a third party to get involved and interfere with the patient care. So we prototyped a touchscreen application where with very few words on it, where you could literally press a bit of the body and press an emoji and then maybe select on some icons about whether or not you'd taken any pain relief for it and things like that to, to remove that opportunity for somebody else to put their interpretation on on what the patient was feeling and also because it was on you know sort of prototyped an ipad it it removed the sort of physical opportunity for someone to be getting in the way because it really brought the patient and the midwife together um and i've always been someone i would look for the cheapest way of solving a problem so in jams and hacks and things quite often we've done things like build a cardboard mobile phone and have someone like pulling bits of paper through the back of it to sort of replicate what that would be like if you actually built it as technology because it, it it's very important to fail fast i think especially when you're spending public money we need to find the cheapest way of proving out whether a concept is actually going to work and you can quite often see that without actually building any technology, if you can find a way to demonstrate it in, in a sort of a cheaper way. Well, you, you've, you've started to answer a question I haven't asked really um, about innovation. You know, I, th- I find the sort of word innovation and technology become interchangeable, you know, and, uh, um, and a lot of people, the question with innovation is how do you actually make it ensure that it's useful rather than it's just clever? And you've started to answer that. Um, I wonder if your background has something to do with that, the fact that you came up a different route. Do you think that's made a, a difference to how you think? Partly. Um, I think, some, yeah, some of it might be because you're sort of not the person who's necessarily in charge. You might you might look at things in a different way. I think partly as well because I'm completely self-taught in this, in this industry. Um, you know, I dropped out of... Uh, an art and music joint honours and then on the side I did a humanities degree which was creative writing and music and a bit of games dev with some French one in there just for a laugh Um, so I've never been formally trained in programming I did teach myself some coding in the sort of early noughties um, but I think because I haven't been trained in the way that universities will train people in the established ways of working, I've been very happy to come along and ask what might be stupid questions. Like, why are you doing it like that? Is that really effective? Is that going to work? I think also I've seen a lot of projects over the years where it seemed like a really good idea at the time. And for whatever reason, um, people haven't adopted the thing or um, it hasn't actually solved the problem that we thought it would solve. Um, and I, I can't understate the value of user research. A few years ago, um, while I was working at NHS Digital, we were looking at identity management and looking at mobile. But when the user researchers went out into the hospitals and were on the wards, 
that the nurses and other healthcare workers on the ground, they they weren't thinking about smartphones. For them, mobile just meant being able to walk around and take the records with them. And they had these computers on wheels um, and they were, you know, happily trundling about. <clears throat> and for them, they, they couldn't imagine how a smartphone at that time was going to make it any better because they, they were mobile already. So, Emma, obviously, it sounds as though you've been with the NHS in various roles for, for quite a while. Um, but the the NHSX and the Innovation Lab is a fairly new sort of being. Um, so what's sort of so different about it? Or what's um, going to be yeah. so different about it? So I actually I joined on secondment in June and um, permanently in August. So I'm still very much in startup mode. Um, but my whole model is really about trying to look across um, – sort of look for real problems that people have. Um, I'm looking for problems with wide application at scale as well. It, it needs to be something that isn't just for one particular setting because the NHS is vast. There are also um, five core missions for NHSX and, you know, we've got those sort of handled already. Um, and so I need to look across things that are either cross-cutting or that no one else is looking at. And so the first step is really validating the need um, I can spot opportunities, but we need to then go and validate that there's really a problem there. And also, what is the value of solving that problem? Um, you know, what actual outcome will there be if we deliver some technology to solve this problem? Um, and then from there, sort of once you've done a bit of user research, a bit of desk research, it's very much about doing a hack to see how far we can get with the tech. And then anything that looks promising, um, develop that out further so we can go and test it properly in a real world setting. Now, ideally, that process should take no more than three months um, to start getting some real data around whether a technology idea is going to be worth investing in further. And I imagine about 75% of my projects will fail, but that that will be success because we will have spent very little money to get to the point where we recognize that either this technology is, it's not something that we can adopt in health yet for whatever reason. Um, there are some great ideas out there, but if the general population are not yet behaving in a way where this technology will naturally sort of slot into their existing working practices or the the way they'd need to change is so so large that it's not realistic to expect that change then it's not it's not worth investing yet um i know when the the sort of the department was conceived people were talking about radical innovation but in health we're still trying to get rid of fax machines and pages. So radical innovation is is quite different for us. It's really about looking for technology that's it's not bleeding edge. Um, it's proven in maybe one or two different sectors. And there are enough of a mass of people who are familiar enough with the technology that we've got a real chance to actually roll it out widely in health. And also understanding the complexity of the landscape. I mean, it isn't one NHS. That's maybe something the public don't understand, but there are hundreds of different NHS trusts. And then you throw in sort of social care organisations, private providers of different services. And we're trying to join all of that up and move patient information around between all of it. And everybody's using different IT systems and has different budget cycles. Trying to coordinate change in that landscape is incredibly difficult. You've, you've talked about... Um... You know, one of the ways that you start to you know ensure that you're, I suppose, providing value for money, doing the right thing is, you know, is 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 uh, thinking about the user coming from the user. You gave us that great example at the start. Um, 
But I guess your your challenge must be that your users are everybody, you know, like literally every gender, every ethnicity. Um, how do you manage to stay connected with such a diverse and, and also understand such a diverse group of people? It, it is a real challenge. And I think recently with sort of a, mo- a move to remote working and not being able to get out into real world settings at the moment, it, it's really difficult to reach some of those sort of communities that are not as connected. Um, but I think partly through experience of working with different groups, we we know which communities may be underrepresented. We know which communities we need to really focus on. And for me, one of the sort of first pieces of innovation that I've led, which sounds ridiculous, but is getting a non-disclosure agreement written for adults with low literacy. So trying to write a very short document that isn't full of legalese for people with a reading age of eight, because there's no point me going out and doing user research with a cohort of exclusively sort of well-educated, affluent sort of individuals, because they're not representative of the, the health population. And I think sometimes in a lot of technology, you, you've got that 80-20 rule where sort of you focus on making it work for 80% of the people and actually and the, the rest is all kind of an edge case. But actually for us, our edge cases are the things we need to look at the most, those people who are maybe most vulnerable or whose stories are most challenging or whose belief systems will make it really difficult for us to, to work sort of on on that 80-20 principle. Um, An example there I can give is we were working on the national opt-out program at NHS Digital, and um, which was about allowing patients to choose whether or not they share their information for uh, research that would then inform kind of public health initiatives or sort of planning where to put particular services. Um, and I think we had 28,000 different organizations in scope collecting data. Um, and we had to find a way to make it easy for the general public to make that choice when it was quite a complex idea, sort of what is this data used for? What, what is planning? You know, it's, it's, it's quite a, a long thing to explain to someone. Um, and the user researchers were doing a session with a traveler community um, and showed this beautiful little video all about the benefits of data sharing and it was about um, a pregnant woman with diabetes and just told the story of how the data collected had sort of led to transformation in care that would greatly improve the outcomes of a diabetic mother and it's a lovely little video and we showed it to the to the group and the the user researchers were, were saying so what do you think about that and the first comment that came back is disgusting Oh, and actually, for for some people in the traveler community, pregnancy is it's part of women's private sexual health. You know, it's it's not a thing to talk about. It is disgusting, and we were really surprised about that because it's it's quite a visible condition. It's not sort of it's not like talking about sexually transmitted infections, for example, or to us, it's not. But for that community, it was just the equivalent of you know sort of talking about lady bits they, they just didn't want to know and so it's like oh right okay so we we need to consider some of these sensitivities if we're trying to get the message across in a way that is sensitive for, for all audiences um and those base assumptions we have about what and what are not acceptable they're not shared across you know different cultures and different communities um and for me that was a really eye-opening one 
Um, I think also sometimes it's just about trying to have the broadest base of individuals uh, and it's not just about different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds, about, you know, sort of neurodiversity, social diversity and understanding that, again, I'm really passionate about designing technology for people that works, but it's also got to be a technology that's accessible and not too expensive because if we if we're sort of designing things that require people to have a smartphone not everybody can afford a smartphone you know and lots of people are using someone else's hand-me-down phone and things like that so a lot of the solutions that you sort of start to think of that are great for again an affluent sort of tech savvy audience they're just not realistic for the wider population I mean, obviously, the diversity within a setting like the NHS is huge. And, you know, that's with, of course, the general public, but also the diversity within the actual healthcare system itself with healthcare workers. Um, How many projects are sort of focused on workplace improvement and how many are focused on actual sort of patient uh, usability or, or improvement? Again, because of the scale of the NHS and the the way sort of different organizations manage their own initiatives I I couldn't tell you how many are focused on that but we definitely have um, missions around patient experience and missions around um, you know sort of improving things for the workforce Um, we have sort of initiatives around reducing burden um, productivity efficiency so all of these things play into either one or both space because in the end when when you're designing something that is maybe designed to improve efficiency for clinicians it's going to have an impact on patient experience so the two things go hand in hand really I don't think you can really sort of categorize them in, in such a blunt way now, and that's what I was really asking because I sort of um I guess from my experiences quite often you know the, the customers and, and actual uh there's two types of customers there's the internal and the external and often you know this focus is just on one and not the other and and often it leads into more complications for one than the other so something like the nhs is a really interesting sort of dilemma for you to, to be in the middle of yeah it's it, it is i mean in some ways it's really rewarding because you can do one project that not only improves patient experience but also makes it easier for clinicians but then in other settings you can be trying to do something that would seem to be better but because of the way people um, are used to behaving because of the way people are trained we can introduce clinical risk so an example there if you decide to redesign a screen that um, a clinician is using if you make it more usable according to best practices and sort of design principles that's all well and good but if you've moved the button and that clinician is now having to spend an extra few seconds looking for it. In a life and death situation, that's a bad thing. And so we've got to be really careful about how we do introduce new things and, you know, making sure that people are on board with us when we are making these sort of changes and that we test them rigorously with our audiences before rolling them out. You know, it's not like Facebook where they can roll out a change to the interface and people whinge about, oh, where's old Facebook? Yeah, it's fine. It doesn't matter. Nobody's going to die if they can't find how to post something on the feed for five minutes. Um, but, you know, sort of in, in healthcare, it's very different. What I find interesting about doing this podcast, it's not until we actually start talking to people, I, I begin to find out what, you know, what, what it is we're here to talk about. And I think you, um, you point to something kind of really interesting there, which I think lots of people um, 
struggle with, which is, you know, in a world where people are building technology and they have some idea of um, of what their users are like, you know, I think quite often what what confounds teams and projects is is the resistance. You like build a brilliant product and then people you know, don't don't sort of take it on. So, you know, the key to that is take them take them with you. Now, you are dealing with you know doctors doctors particularly who are very good at what they do um, and have some quite sort of strong ideas about change and things like that. How do you how do you take them with you? How do you ensure that they are on board? Um, so, partly through making sure that we've always got input from sort of relevant clinicians. Um, so if we're doing a project that is for clinicians, then definitely involving people with the right practice. We have all sorts of clinical safety groups. Um, I particularly enjoy trying to find the most paranoid clinician I can to work with because it means then you get all the disbenefits up front. It's a bit like being in sales. Get all your objections out first, and then I'll work out how to overcome them. And in sort of a clinical safety setting, it's tell me the worst thing that could possibly happen, and then we will look at ways to, to mitigate that. Um, so in one of my last projects at NHS Digital in my, my former role, um, we were looking at how to get COVID-related information into the summary care record, which is basically a slice of information taken from your GP record that's then accessed by other healthcare settings to tell them the most sort of important information that you need to know up front, sort of so what medications are people on, what allergies have they got, what long-term conditions have they got, just to ease ease that kind of initial triage piece um and we were being asked to put covid related information into the record um and there were was lots of concern about potential health inequalities there was lots of concern about whether or not people knew enough about covid to be making accurate sort of diagnoses um there was lots of concern because we were trying to put in place Um, a mechanism to show test results before the testing capability had actually been built so it was like you know kind of is what we build going to be accepting the right data from the right sources how do we do that Um, you know how do you predict what might come and just in terms of things like clinical coding there so a lot of medical information is coded with what's called snowmed codes um, where basically it's it's given this code that then helps us do things with it later Um, and by may there were 86 different snowmed codes relating to covid and if you're a busy gp in a surgery are you are you consistently going to pick the same one every time with your own patients never mind the gp in the next room picking the same one that you've picked for the same kind of presentation of symptoms and again, especially with an emerging disease where we don't really know a great deal about it. So, you know, trying to think about those challenges and what data to show and what data not to show. So, again, we did loads of user research. Um, we were operating really rapidly as well. We tend to, on a night, do a tweet and say, hi, I'm looking for a load of clinicians across these settings. Um, and then we'd interview them, synthesize the research. And from that, we decided that actually there were only five of these SNOMED codes that would be really valuable information to show because the rest of it had such uncertainty around it that it wasn't going to impact on the way that a clinician was going to treat a patient if that information was in front of them. Um, Because in the end, you know, we can give people as much data as you like, but if it's not going to change the way they behave, what's the point? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm really interested in just given what you're saying, and I I know you're fairly new to this new role, but, um, you know, you're talking about user research, you know, clearly really, you know, doing a lot of work there. You're talking about, rapid development testing uh now these all sound very kind of collaborative practices now you know what i'm 
hearing from a lot of people now in their workplaces is that they're not going to be maybe going back into the office until Christmas or even April. So I'm really interested how you're managing to do those things, which sound like the ideally it's people meeting in rooms. How are you doing that in this current situation? Do you know, I found that the hardest thing about remote working. Um, I didn't used to sit at a desk all day. I used to be on a whiteboard or moving between different teams, looking over people's shoulders, poking my nose in. Um, and I've only had a couple of face-to-face days with our our team to to have that kind of experience of drawing something on a wall and someone going, oh, have you thought about this? Um I mean, in terms of user research, some of it we are we are trying to do some. It's difficult. We can't necessarily get into all the hospitals at the moment, but I am doing a piece of work around wearables. And again, rather than getting excited about shiny technology, I've got some pin badges and some silicon wristbands, and I'm going to go and test in two settings with some people whether they're going to wear them for long enough for us to bother investing in the technology. Um on the other front, I mean, a lot of stuff we're having to rely on things like surveys to to get um information from people i'm doing lots of video interviews with people and it's not quite the same as meeting with them to to have that face-to-face interview but at least video gives us that the observational research though is certainly really difficult right now and some of that's just going to come down to picking our moment again recognizing that winter's coming um you know sort of the nhs and winter pressures it's a real thing people tend to get more illnesses as the weather gets colder um people who have long-term conditions can worsen in winter there's an awful lot of pressure so we're just going to have to be pragmatic about what kind of research we can do which settings are we can go and, and work in and even when we can go and work in a setting if we've got appropriate ppe um doing things that we know don't introduce burden so sometimes it might be having to stand next to a clinician who's doing it the old way and mocking up what it would be like doing it the new way alongside them and literally kind of recording the differences um it's not ideal it's not quite as natural as it could be but but in these times of sort of social distancing and being really careful about you know sort of aerosol transmission that's how we're going to have to work and i think sometimes it's just trying to be creative again to find a way to be able to do it um i mean i'm at the moment I'm, i've got a lot of kids toys on the floor in front of me because i'm trying to simulate something to show someone how how things are working and the only you know i can't go and video it in a hospital so as i said i've got a lot of kids toys on the floor that i'm videoing to show how it how it works just sort of through again having formally observed these things to illustrate the concept here this is what it's like <laughs> Right, and I like yeah, I like what you say there. You're using the constraints of the situation to sort of experiment. I mean, there's something you wouldn't be doing otherwise, right? I imagine. Oh, I don't know. I've I've always been someone that I'm I'm very fond of playful techniques because I think it can make people think very differently. Um, I found doing workshops with people, if you ask them to think about their users, um, then quite often they they will immediately come up with people who are like them. But if I've handed them a small toy which is an individual in a wheelchair or somebody from a different ethnic background to that person or even someone of a different gender and said this is you you know how to empathize with this just having the toy in their hand makes them think differently than if it's just a bit of paper saying actually this is the person that you're designing for um because somehow having having that in their hand and being able to move it around a sort of you know simulated setting it it makes it helps you put yourself in into that setting and think differently the when we're getting down to getting close to the end of the of the podcast now, I suppose what I'm really interested in is 
is how are you going to continue to move forward given the constraints that you are under and that these constraints might well change um, any day now um, or, or within weeks and months, you know? Um, so what's, what's the sort of the plan for the next step? Um, well, I've got some themes that I've set for my kind of objectives this year. One of the projects that I'm trying to push forward on is reducing typing as in, you know, keying information into a computer um and i can certainly do some desk research i can certainly prove out some technical concepts and i can mock things up in a hack um and find a low risk care setting in which to trial these things so i'm going to proceed as normal perhaps not as the pace that i'd like perhaps not with the breadth of care settings that i'd like but um there are lots of remote tools that allow us to collaborate it it maybe doesn't feel the same, but it's the new normal. We're all learning as we go along. Um, and you do the best you can with with what you've got. Um, and again, because my approach is let's spend as little money as possible to prove or disprove something, um, just having to work within your constraints is, is part of the job. And how's how's building the team, the, the innovation lab team going with all the constraints you've got as well? So at the moment, it is myself and a business analyst, but I am recruiting. I have four roles going out this week. Um, I'm also looking for some interim staff just, again, to get things going so that we're, we're not held up by that. Um, it's an interesting time for recruitment. I think there are lots of people who, unfortunately, their organizations have either furloughed them or are taking things in a direction that you know, maybe makes them feel differently about the organization. So in some ways, it's a really good time to be recruiting. You know, we offer stability in health. It, no one's ever going to suddenly be 100% healthy and not need healthcare. So we <laughs> we provide quite a stable career. I think also um, working in health, it gives, it gives you purpose that some of the technology roles don't necessarily offer. Um, I mean, Neil, you mentioned my TED talk. I was very sort of skeptical about the shape of sort of how marketing industry has shaped sort of digital and how that has led to some transformation in society. Um, but I think, you know, sort of working in health, you're you're doing it for, for a good reason and you're trying to contribute something of value to society. And I think that really appeals to a lot of people. Well, it's a brilliant place to end because, you know, I feel it's one of those conversations that every time we talk that we've just started, it'd be really good to talk to you in six months or a year when you've been in the role just to see what's happened. Uh, what we will do um, when we publish this is we will put out your TED Talk as well, actually, but particularly if you've got any of those job applications, we'll put it out there. See if Because I'm, I'm sure some people listening to, go, to this will go, oh, I like the sound of that, so we can put that out as well. So, uh, so thank you for talking to us today. Right, right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please leave us your comments and remember to subscribe to the Plan C podcast with Neil Gibb and Dave Lester.